0: Kia ora e te and welcome to Tall Stories Tales from the Built Environment a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building Join us as we delve into personal stories about inspirational career journeys for people in design and construction as you too build your own story
1: This episode is hosted by Adam Baxter. Adam is a project manager at Placemakers and he's on the New Zealand Institute of Buildings Southern Region Committee. Adam spoke with Bridget White, Senior Architect and BIM Director at the Nordic Office of Architecture and Kerry Niven, New Zealand Digital Practice Leader at Oricon.
0: Bridget, can you share with us what led you to choose a career in construction, how it all got started?
2: Yeah, well, I guess um, I can actually go back to when I was at school because um, uh, my career path actually was a combination of my passion for the outdoors and my determination in the academic uh, sort of side of the world. And um, I was always sort of a creative person, but also loved, you know, maths and physics. And I I knew from sort of a younger age that architecture would potentially be a great fit for me. And um, that sort of formed uh, the way that I continued into a degree in EDVAC, an architecture degree, and and then the way that I sort of moved from there back down to Wanaka, where I could continue my passion for being in the outdoors and uh, try to work in the profession of architecture at the same time. And that combination has sort of formed my path, if you could say it, because um, after Wanaka I realized that I needed to sort of branch out, learn a bit more about the world. Um, I had this underlying um, passion for Scandinavian design and the way they, they integrate nature and the outdoors with the way they design and that really uh, resonated with me and um, I decided to pack up, move to Norway and see see how that would uh, go. So yeah, just generally my um, passion for creativity and more analytical and it, Sort of side of things lead me to architecture.
0: Cool. I'm really interested in a story of a career and how that gets built. Where you're thinking about what you were planning or what you had in mind about your career would look like when you first started, and how that develops through time with factors like timing and opportunity and the people you meet along the way. I'm you can tell a little bit of the story about what you thought your career would be when you started and where it's ended up and maybe where it could be going.
2: Definitely, um, I think unfortunately uh, well, when I was going through architecture school there was one path and that was ingrained in my brain, it was get registered, work as an architect, that's it. But I realised quite quickly that I wasn't actually using the creative side of my brain that I thought I would be using um, when I started working in office. And I realized that um, I had a real big passion for innovation and sort of um, seeing a lot of frustration in the industry and not being able to really work that I wanted to to work. Um, And when I moved to Norway, I understood that um, they're pushing the boundaries over there in terms of optimising architecture and um, using resources such as technology to get better designs, understand their designs better. And I was really interested because that sort of level of innovation and creativity inside of the profession that wasn't necessarily, you know, concept design, detail design, develop design, construction, it was sort of running parallel but intertwined with that. Um, and I became really passionate about that and it led me to more um, digital strategy um, inside of design strategy mm. rather than a typical architectural uh, role.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, Gary, I'm going to jump over to you now same sort of questions. How did it all get started for you in the construction industry and what made you, I think, choose the path that you've, that you've walked?
1: It's, it's an interesting question as I'm listening to you talk. I'm thinking I'm much less deliberate um, and much more serendipitous, I think, in the way that I've landed where I have, um, which I don't think you would actually say is the construction industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess working for Oricon is design, construction and operations and all of the advisory and you know, the digital and innovation pieces that go around that kind of of whole-of-life approach to assets and information, which is the combination of what we do. But I was thinking about it, and I guess I can go all the way back to school, um, and I promise I'll keep it short. So when they were having the career discussions at my last year um, of school, I didn't really understand the point system at the universities in New Zealand, and I didn't really get enough advice to make a good decision. And um, I was lucky enough to, to get some advice um, just from a friend of a friend who said, hey, you look like you're going to go to Canterbury and do Lauren Classics. Um, you've got your It's all structured wrong, and, and I don't actually think that you're going to get what you want from it because you're not terribly good with rules. And, and I said, okay, what do you think? And he said, why don't you go to Lincoln, um, where you can be much more kind of fluid in your choices. And so I took Parks and Rec. Um, which is a degree that I'm not sure exists anymore at Lincoln the wonderful thing about that degree is there's no maths at all and you can go which I did my whole life with not doing any maths so that was me falling into that and the cool thing about Parks and Rec was that it had all these different channels so um, I did a lot of natural resource law I looked at services design, so I looked at marketing and I did a lot of that stuff I learnt a little bit about logic and critical reasoning, Um, did a little couple of philosophy papers, fell into GIS, so Geospatial um, and Geographic Information Systems, in those days using the DOS-based prompt system, and I really loved those papers. And from there I sort of thought, you know, what now? So when you go into a postgrad, you know, you have to do qualitative and quantitative research, and I thought, doesn't sound that interesting, so what else can I do? And I fell into doing um, a master's in applied science. I took my geospatial stuff on and went into into that and got really interested in things like flood resilience and uh, drought modelling and that kind of thing, which led me to natural resource engineering, again with no maths, um, which was great. And then still sticking with the geospatial stuff, um, I went on to do um, what was then a master's in philosophy because I didn't know what else to call it at Massey in, in GIS. But my first job straight out of uni was actually at Vance Peninsula District Council just over the hill here in Christchurch, and that's a tiny council. And I fell into the role of um, GIS manager, which is easy in an organisation of six or seven. And it meant that I did everything from building out their mapping system, to looking at all of their cadastral information. So when there were new subdivisions, I got to draw those up and design out You know, the new easements and stuff. I once um, designed a sewer realignment for the park terrace rising main. And I got to hold a stop-go sign on the roadworks out on the peninsula and, you know, the full suite of what happens in the asset environment. And I just found that fascinating. It was that real combination of the breadth of learning that I took on at uni, new challenges, new kind of disciplines, and then being thrown straight into this jack-of-all-trades role. And, you know, I was wearing a suit on the side of the road holding the stop, go sign, because afterwards I'd have to go back and see ratepayers about, you know, looking at their property dimensions and stuff, so I think it's fair to say it's been a very long and winding road, (laughs)
0: Mm.
1: but a really interesting one, and I think that's the thing that, um, the advice that I give to the people that, you know, I now work with or we bring into this organisation and say, you don't have to get it right first time. You know, it's a great thing that you've got to where you are now, um, but you can go anywhere from there, so... I think that's the one thing that I've I've kind of held. Well, maybe it's just me being optimistic about my journey, <laughs> mm. but it's certainly been interesting.
0: Yeah. Bridget, on the on the back of that, um, kind of it seems to me I'm preaching to the choir, but the the idea would be to try and be as fluid and open as you can if you're a young person moving into the industry and, and taking that approach. How do how do we do that? If if I'm a young person, I'm a little bit anxious about this space that I have to work within, how do I maybe um, build my character or, or develop myself to be open to those kind of opportunities and, and that right sort of mindset to make the most of them when they pop up?
2: I think, um, and something that I try to do is um, take on challenges that put me outside of my comfort zone a little bit because um, you end up meeting someone or making a connection or learning something about something that you didn't envisage that you would and I think uh, the biggest thing for me is that the industry is actually about people, um, mostly passionate about you know, passionate about the industry, whether it's design, construction, um, talking to people and being open to new experiences. I think that's really valuable, and um I had that advice when I was going through university. It still resonates with me now. Uh, things that frighten me. okay, I'll give it a go and see, see what happens. Mm. And if it doesn't work, okay then I learned something from that, or I met someone that maybe leads to something else. But, um, yeah, just have a go. I think uh, I think it's a good start.
0: Kerry, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, would you say that those opportunities are there in the industry? You know, the to play devil's advocate, I'm a student and I'm thinking, gosh, maybe the other side of that coin is I want to specialise in something and find a niche and be really good at that, and, and therefore I'm safe and I know that I've got something to offer the industry – um, are there opportunities out there to be that fluid and and kind of apply yourself in different areas like you both have?
1: Well, I think so. Um, particularly, I guess, and I'll speak to digital and you know the tech side of um, that question because that's where I sit. Is you know how quickly does it change? So we have to get really comfortable with uncertainty um, in this day and age because if you're specialising in some particular type of capability that relies on a particular technology, what's the longevity of that? It's it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter, you know, as we go into, you know, this world that's driven by AI and, you know, things that change so rapidly. So my advice um, to people generally is just don't get too, you know, too kind of pigeonholed into one. It's great to specialise in a capability, but when that's tied to something like technology, then that becomes reasonably tenuous, I, I think. So... My advice to people is to become T shaped if you can. So, you know, preserve that technical expertise, and that's really important. But let's broaden out the other skills, you know, like communication, like collaboration, like learning to think about innovation, and, you know, just really challenge yourself in that way. um, Because it doesn't have to be an either or um, conversation. So, I think people are, are. starting to realise, and certainly we see it in the graduates, um, a lot of my computational design team, for example, they're architects, and they're brilliant in that because they understand space and they get—they just get the relationship of objects to things, and we're really finding that that skill set in particular is just so flexible. We can apply them to lots of different challenges outside of traditional architecture um, sort of activities, so things like that are, are really starting to change.
0: I'm interested to hearing from both of you um, around visualisation and communicating all the technical stuff that you're both involved in and the layers involved in that and then also the people who are going to use that information. Um, for example, my my background as a builder and I... I see a set of architectural drawings as an instruction on how to put a building together. But it always really interests me to think, what's the mindset of people who are making those decisions and designs and taking in data and um, trying to look for good ways to put together projects um, and how you guys are communicating that to, to everyone that you're talking with. So,
2: I think you're raising a really interesting uh Point um, and something that we're really trying to look at in our own company, and that's the idea that um, it's still uh, each discipline is still sitting in their own silo in many ways. We are collaborating, but we're not really, in a way, listening uh, quite enough to one another. Mm. And if you think about the guys on the or the guys and the girls on the building side and what they really need and what they're really looking for, uh, we could learn so much from the people that are actually building, which could enrich the way that we design. And a really good example of this is uh, waste management. Um, I think that if we listen to the people who are building and understood where is the waste, how much waste, how can we better be better at designing to reduce waste, and we actually work together uh, and had the people working on the building side help us in the design uh, the way we designed to understand in the early phase how we can reduce waste, I think that we can we can really go somewhere in the building industry and, and be more sustainable and more um, uh, efficient essentially but we're still not listening to one another quite good enough I don't think and it's something that we're trying to improve on but um, in, in terms of visual- visualization I think technology has really helped uh, now and um, we have many building sites that are only model based we don't have any drawings and we use visualizations programs such as Enscape which is just a plug to Revit and it makes very very realistic renders so that's sort of to communicate to the client and the building site but um, there is an issue with the, the way we're communicating. Uh, we're providing too much sometimes, or mm. not the right things, mm. and so I think that we could really sit around the same table and, and, and be better at that for sure.
0: Yeah, Kerry, uh, your thoughts on that as well, because we don't necessarily have an understanding problem in the construction industry, but maybe the communication is the key. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, so I was up last night um reading some of the papers that Standards Australia are starting to, to put out and um, there's a really interesting one around digital engineering and, and how it's sort of come to be um, so prevalent now as a thing across um, industry and in um, part of that document they talk about, they show those kind of little, um, what do they call those spider diagrams where you can map the communication and the source and, and the channels and how it all kind of fits together as a network. And if you've seen them before, there's a really traditional one of the construction industry, and it's all, like, it's all over the place. Mm. Whereas, you know, you look at the other types of industries, and it's much tighter. And, and so this paper in particular is sort of trying to unpack why that is. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's people are deeply technical and deeply capable in their own specific preserve, um, and they're part of the life cycle. But they don't have that common ground to communicate and collaborate because sometimes it's a technology thing, sometimes it's a capability thing, um, but that network is really dispersed and really fragmented. And one thing that we do a lot of in, in Oricon is, because you know we're an organisation of engineers, is we have a principle called make the complex simple. And if you understand the audience that you're trying to communicate and engage with, then the, sometimes the tools that you use aren't appropriate. So you kind of have to think about who's upstream and who's downstream and, and really produce the information for them, not for you. And and so that's what digital engineering is starting to talk about is, as a holistic thing across the life cycle of a project. What are the information needs of all of the stakeholders and how do you actually design a system or systems that allow for that to happen, for those interactions? So it's that whole you know information, right information, right place, right time, right purpose, that is starting to just become so critical. Because the complexity of the information is just getting more complex,
0: right? Yeah, sure. This episode is proudly sponsored by Jib Plasterboard, your local plasterboard manufacturer. Jib Plasterboard offers a wide range of training programs and technical help for lining installation, fire resistance performance, noise control, wet area systems and rigid air barrier solutions. Please call the JIB helpline team on 0800 100 442 for technical support, or register for a training session at jib.co.nz/training-and-events. At the NZIOB, we're really interested in wellness um, and how that plays a part into. Building, let's say, the leaders and the next generation of people so we can maybe get a little bit better at communicating. I'm also interested in kind of the psychological safety aspect of our industry and how we communicate and what grounds are we coming from, not only technically fighting our corners, but how we approach each other when we want to communicate and get something delivered, I suppose. What's some maybe um, experiences that you've had, um, positive experiences about how we can collaborate better um, to deliver something?
2: Um, I can maybe draw from an example um, in a hospital project in um, uh, Stavanger in uh, Norway, where we were del- designing uh, prefabricated or modular uh, units for the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're designing modular, you're, you're no longer a single discipline you're essentially a team and to be successful in that kind of environment, you have to create a team feeling mm-hmm. and every member, in- including the construction team, was a member of the creation team, had uh, ideas about how the modules were going to work, how they were going to be assembled, how they were going to be brought to site. And we created an environment where every idea was valuable and everybody's uh, needs and uh, optimized idea of how it would work was set around the table. And we had workshops and we created a team environment and that created a hugely successful project where everyone felt proud of the final result, and I learned from that that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone needs to be feeling as if they're on the same level, Mm -hmm. and then you're really successful, actually. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Kerry, I'm I'm wondering, someone in your position who's dealing with a technical web, kind of as you've just described, to be able to have a good performance at work, how important is it to sort of develop a character? I suppose, and build up that other side of your life, let's say that work-life balance and ability to switch off and be your best self to approach those sorts of really complex issues that we were just talking about.
1: That's a good question. So what advice would I give my people versus what do I do myself is a slightly different question. Mm-hmm. I guess I learned a lesson quite a few years ago, um, once upon a time I worked at NIWA, um, And we were building the River Environment Classification for New Zealand and and I was writing all the code, um, showing my age in Fortran and Delphi and things like that. And we'd come across these really gnarly problems in the code. And when I got to a point where it was either tear my hair out or put my running shoes on, that was the answer. And and it really, really, really helped. And uh, it became a real habit, you know, just leave, go for a run at lunchtime. And more often than not, just that, step away, get some perspective, think about something else and come back to it really, really helps. And um and I I take my running shoes wherever I go and um when I'm travelling for work and things like that. It's also a really good way to see a city. Um but it really helps and it's not just the near death experience you're having when you're not particularly fit, it's the ability to just kind of switch off and think about anything else. Um is really helpful. So um, I say to my people, do you know, do the same, whatever it is for you. It doesn't have to be running. It's just you have to take you know, take that time and make it happen. Um, make it important to you. And don't kind of squeeze it. That's the challenge is you know, it, if you've got people calling you for things then you know, you think, Oh, I can always run tomorrow, I can it, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. So you have to make it important and, and you have to stick to it. So mm-hmm. that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah.
0: Bridget, I think um, going on from that as well, uh, traditionally, at least in my experience of the construction industry, um, it's changing a little bit, but when I first started out, and I still have colleagues and people I work with who are like this, it's a badge of honour to work as many hours as you possibly can, and never take a sick day, and always try and be that super reliable person. Is that a good environment, or is that a good habit to get yourself into if you want to be able to perform optimally at work and kind of enjoy your career?
2: Uh, I think your efficiency just it just goes down after a certain amount of hours and unfortunately that kind of environment at architecture school is encouraged and it's pretty unhealthy and it's not realistic. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from Scandinavia actually. Um, they have a really uh, a really good balance for family and the outdoors and work. And we're more efficient than ever because people are happy and healthy and they enjoy their time with their family. And on a Friday, the office is empty at 2 o'clock because everyone's headed off to their cabins. Um, But in that sense, everyone's willing to stretch that extra mile if it's needed. Um, You can rely on your team because they are not worn out to the bone and uh, they're willing to do that if they need to. But uh, that's not a necessary part of their everyday life. Mm. It's, it's It's a really interesting culture to sort of witness and, and yeah, learn from,
0: actually. Um, Kerry switching tack a little bit, I'm interested on your thoughts about how you've seen diversity and equality of opportunity sort of change within your time in the industry from when you started it, over the hill of Max Peninsula to where you are now.
1: I guess, for me personally, I've been really lucky. Uh, really lucky, so even at the Expeditula, um, the only other two women on in the, in the leadership there, really well supported, and just given the opportunity to have a go, um, really well supported, so I was very, very lucky, and similarly at Niwa, um, and then on into my work in the UK, but I guess I'm one of those people, um, similarly to you, and I'm reasonably comfortable with um, uncertainty and taking a risk, and definitely one of those people who'll fight for my corner when I need to so that's not a problem I guess Um, for me I need to recognize that other people aren't necessarily like that and so people in my team who I see struggling um, with decisions or with being able to stand up and you know be heard in different ways because you don't always have to be the noisiest person in the room um, it's really important to help them understand how to kind of step forward in their own way and and to make sure that they are supported Um, so I guess at Oricon we really, very, very serious about um, equality, equity, diversity and we do everything that we can to make sure that we create this inclusive um, environment, no matter what people bring into our organisation and we're really seeing the return on that policy. Um, We do a lot of work in terms of making sure that we're capturing feedback and we're acting on things that aren't quite working and we're prepared to make change. Um, It's a long journey. And I think we are seeing um, some of the things that we do differently here around say things like paternity and you know, being able to take flexible leave across two different parents and all sorts of things like that um, aren't necessarily reflected in the organisations that we work with and work for. Mm. We still see a little bit of, it's not conflict, it's more, I'd almost say surprise. You know, that some other organisations see what we're doing and they think, how on earth can you make that work? Um, But it's a learning curve and it's worth the investment. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, to go back to your question, whilst I haven't had necessarily a bad experience myself, I'd be naive to think that that's the case um, anywhere, including here at Oricon. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the case of being proactive Mm -hmm. and listening carefully.
0: I'm putting my young person hat on here, going into the industry. Um, it's big, it's gnarly, it's complex. Um, I've got ambition. How am I going to know that um, fine line between pushing myself and challenging myself and then also burning myself out? How have you found experiences, either yourself or through watching others um, in, in, in your work life on how that can happen and any learnings you've picked up from that along the way?
1: I think you can spot what you might call a high-potential, high-growth individual. Um, you learn to spot them, you know, the ones who are highly motivated they're into everything if there's an opportunity that's out there they're in it it doesn't matter what it is you know but be part of the social club be part of this committee be part of that and they're always at the front with their hands up saying let's do it and they're trying to do everything in their own roles um, i guess that those are the people that we've learned to watch um, and it's to say okay we understand your enthusiasm and that's wonderful let's help you manage that in terms of a work-life balance we want you yeah, here for the long game, um, and, and let's put some sort of, I guess, rigour around that thinking. So we do a lot of career planning. Um, so we take grads in, as most organisations do, out of university. Um, they'll join us, and we put them on a rotation. So even if they join us as, say, a civil drafter or a civil modeller, um, they'll have the opportunity to go into, say, our buildings group or um, into our energy and industrial group and move around so they get that exposure to the different ways of working. And we find that that helps really early on so that they can sort of say, I don't have to be so focused here, throw all my energy into that, but I get to kind of broaden my horizon. So our career planning says, let's take a look at what that might be for you in in terms of where you might want to specialise, and then let's look at these things over here that you want to get involved in and how we bring that together and say, this is your learned experience of work let's help you with that so even though it's 40 hours you know give or take a week let's be really clever about that because we need space for those people to learn as well right so we want them to be continuing to um to enrich their knowledge in all sorts of different ways so yeah it's just about sometimes we find we have to break it right down 40 hours what are you going to do for three what are you going to do you know um that's really important and similarly to uplift the people who aren't quite as motivated Mm. So, same
2: approach. Yeah. I could maybe just add to that too and it's not just sort of graduates that are, you need to watch but it's also when someone becomes a mum because uh, I mean that is like such a tough uh, period where you, you go back into your career and you're also not getting any sleep and you're expected to perform at your job and it's something that I definitely watch for in my team and when someone's not sleeping and they're they're worried about their performance at work, you know, we're really careful to say, hey it's okay you know, like work a couple of hours here and there wherever you need to, but it is so tough and it's something that you have to experience to really understand how, how heavy that is being having young kids and also wanting to be professional at your job without having any sleep. Um so we also watch out watch out for that situation a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
2: It's the full suite, isn't it? Absolutely. And dads, of course. Dads are not getting any sleep either, but um yeah, it's a, it's a lot heavier in those earlier years for, for mums, I think. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And in, um, through COVID, since
1: everybody's been at home, I guess that's the interesting thing as well. So we've got full, full but Here, we've got people who don't want to come back into the office because they've got used to it. They're comfortable. And we kind of worry for them thinking, are they becoming more introverted? Because we need these people in the office to work with other people and, you know, feed off each other and have those water cooler chats that are so important. So we're encouraging those people to come back in. And then we've got people who were desperate to get out of working on their kitchen table and, you know, they're in here all the hours that, you know, that there are and there's everything in between. And um, we do a lot of, I guess, uh, we build team charters where we sort of say, hey, um, let's all be in the office on a Tuesday and let's make sure we go out for coffee and let's have a chat about how we're doing and it's really important. We don't have to talk about projects or anything like that but, and let's kind of put aside that time and then we need time to collaborate and we need time to think but let's try and not let anybody fall through those cracks and you know, those are the people with stress that is outside of work because quite often you just don't see that until it's way too late.
0: Yeah, on that, I mean, how do we better, um, I guess, communicate or encourage vulnerability and people opening up? Even if I'm a young person going into the industry, I think um, maybe my natural response is to be sort of close and try and be professional as I can and, and, and develop a bit of a reputation. But surely it's kind of important to encourage a culture where we're, we're pretty open and able to talk openly about where we're at and what we're struggling with and how we move forward together and what. Putting my hand up and saying, hey, I am a new mum and I'm not sleeping and I need some help, Um, please. Stuff like that. What do you, what do you think about that, Richard?
2: Oh, definitely. And, I mean, COVID is a really interesting example. You know, we were having team meetings for 10 minutes every morning, just to touch base, see how, how everyone was going. You know, some people are dealing with kids, and some people are all alone. Uh, both very tough situations um, when you're locked at home. But um, And even now, we meet, meet every week and we sort of have an open door policy where we say, hey, how's it going? You know, we don't have to talk about work, but... Take someone maybe outside of the office environment, so just say, "How's everything going?" and and it's um it's really nice to actually get to know people outside of what they do at work because sometimes you learn something fantastic about someone that's just you know very valuable to maybe a project or or you know maybe something social you do together. Mm. So yeah, just making sure that you sort of touch base with everyone uh, regularly, I think is is really nice as well. I really enjoy it.
0: What would be some advice we'd both give to people who are starting their career in in our industry um, and who want to um, take that technical qualification that they've gained, but also um, try and be a well-rounded character? One thing that we try and do at the EZOB is really encourage that networking and the development of soft skills and workshops around that and not necessarily discipline specific, but on how to be the sort of person you need to be to operate successfully in the industry, What what's some advice that you would give to someone I suppose to um, add that to their toolkit?
2: I think just being very open and open to the idea that you're going to learn through your whole career and that's what's fantastic about architecture and construction. I learn every day in what I'm doing, every day is different mm-hmm. and I think uh, if you close yourself off to the idea that you're going to develop and you need to develop, then um, y- you sort of stop your own career path in a way. You have to be open to the fact that things are changing. Things are changing so fast. Um, learn and take criticism, and either take it on board or push it aside. But just be open to that kind of feedback loop and um, and sharing. Sharing uh, I think is is key.
1: Mm. I think to remain curious is the is the key. Um, I'm always super impressed with the um, maturity of the, the, the graduates and the young professionals that we get through our doors now. They just, they seem to just have this thirst for knowledge um, and they're they're looking for it everywhere and, and I think things like LinkedIn went around when I was uh, finishing up university and there's every day, you know, there's something listed whether it's an online event or whether it's an event in person and um, in Oricon we have our network called Limelight which is our young professionals. And they're into all sorts of things always they're having events and speakers, and they're off to you know post career days and things like that and hooking into those networks and you know you find your tribe whether it's inside your organization or elsewhere um and there's all sorts of things it's just a matter of you know finding out what's happening and getting involved and they certainly they seem to have real curiosity and you know it's worth. I can't keep up with the number of events that they're asking to go to and this. Yeah, it, I think it's brilliant. And it, it's cross-geographies, it's cross-borders, it's cross-disciplines, it's... You know, and everything that they go to, they're meeting new people, they're learning new skills about communication, they're broadening their horizons. And I think that's the track, is to make, make sure they're
2: getting involved.
0: Mm.
2: And I would also add, just uh, don't put up with what exists right now. Like, I think innovation is led by frustration. You know, don't put up with... What it is now. If you see somewhere where you think, hey, let's let's try something different. You know, come with your ideas and and um, yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
2: don't just put up with the way things are going. Just uh, yeah, add your piece from where you're coming from. I think sure,
0: mm. great. Anything else you either of you want to talk about in particular, or points you want to get across, words of wisdom you want to share and impart?
1: I Don't know if I'm in a position. No, I a don't really know wisdom. <laughs> <Yeah. No. laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building.